Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The Hallowed Ground. So glad you've subscribed. So glad that you have found the podcast. This is one of our passion projects. My name is Seth. He's Eric. That's Jeff. Guys, one of Jeff's favorite bands is on the show today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, for sure. Uh, Glenn Phillips, lead singer of Toad the Wet Sprocket. I have been a Toad fan since 91. Um, when I, you know, I... I we found this dusty old single in a, in a record shop and it has been, you Tell know, they've had a great career. Shops were like, Jeff. Uh, this place was selling things that it probably should not have been selling a promo copy from the record label. Uh, you know, it was in the, it was in the discount bin somewhere in the back. And I think you'll, you'll, you know, I got to ask them about that. And, you know, they were just a band that has kind of transcended from early 90s alternative. We know we've talked about this before, what the early 90s meant for alt rock, but they were different. This wasn't the Nirvana, this wasn't the Soundgarden sound, and they transitioned into some really poppy hit alternative songs that made them one of the, one of the favorites of the decade and one of my all-time favorite bands. And Glenn has gone on to have a pretty good six solo career as well he's had a number of really good albums and now it looks like he's uh back doing some work with Tony. tell us how you really feel jeff um you know glenn is too he's somebody that's taken songwriting in so many different directions over the last 25 30 years you know and uh he's grown he's evolved he's done so many different things and he's been very busy over the last you know 14 months while we were in this you know quote unquote pandemic have you he's kept very busy. He's done a lot. And uh, I'm excited to talk to him a little bit about some of that and, and hear a little bit more about, you know, what keeps him up at night. Well, we'll hear from Glenn Phillips in just a moment. But first, let's take a look back and go through Jeff's favorite, Toad the Wet Sprocket. As the lead singer of one of the most accomplished bands of the 90s, Glenn Phillips reached extraordinary commercial success with Toad the Wet Sprocket. Formed by Phillips in 1986 in the Santa Barbara area and named after a Monty Python skit, the members met each other at San Marcos High School. The band would release two self-financed studio albums, first Bread and Circus and then Pale, while developing a devoted following. The band then signed with Columbia Records. Their third album, Fear, spawned the hits Walk on the Ocean and All I Want. Nothing so loud Searing when we lie Truth is not kind And you said neither am I And the air outside so soft Saying everything Following the release of their fifth studio album, Coil, the band would go their separate ways as a full-time act, 
although they continued to make special appearances and small tours. They would officially reunite in December 2010 and release a studio album, New Constellation, following an overwhelmingly popular Kickstarter campaign in October 2013. As a solo act, Glenn has continued to make new music, tour, and record. He's released nine studio albums, multiple collaboration records, maintaining a prolific career. The Hallowed Ground is pleased to welcome from Toad the Wet Sprocket, Glenn Phillips. All right, thanks, Glenn, for, for joining us. So a, a personal story, uh, we had a, an old record shop in the town that I grew up in, and they had a bin in the back just filled with uh, things they shouldn't have probably been selling. And that included the, uh, the CDs, uh, teasers from the record companies. Uh, and uh, one of my good friends, uh, big music fans, he pulled out um, the single for Hold Her Down. And uh, as teenagers, we listened to that song. Uh, we had our own little kind of take on it, right? And, uh, you know, on an album that was filled uh, with so many great songs, uh, was it a surprise uh, that that was the song that they picked uh, to release as a single? Yes, surprising because it's, it's a difficult song. Uh, it's confusing and disturbing and unpleasant. Uh, you know, and and also, you know, the subject matter is was pertinent then and is pertinent now. Um, sure. But things that put it out as a sing single, I'm not sure. I'm not sure in retrospect how I feel about it. I don't know if it did more good than damage uh, because it's misunderstandable. And I never dreamed anyone could misunderstand it, I think. I, I thought the subject was obvious enough that there's kind of only one, you know, rational or human uh, opinion to have about it. And so um, it was really disturbing to see, you know, the occasional frat guys at a show, like where we had, you know, a local, you know, uh, we had the local rape crisis center tabling outside, and then you have, you know, a couple of guys up in front go play older down, <laughs> and uh, it it was really painful to have it to to see like oh wait like people are that kind of tweaked that they could get this wrong, and I mean the song is supposed to be switching between different points of view. It's supposed to be disorienting. It's supposed to be unpleasant and disturbing. But the idea that it would be misconstrued, um, I, I, my, uh, my view of humanity has been adjusted over the last few years. Uh, <laughs> not always on the up and up. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, it was it was an interesting choice. But I, I, yeah, ultimately, I hope it did more more good than damage. I hope people found some solace in it. I love Jeff that you mentioned digging through music bins because I, you know, who doesn't miss that? By the way, going to an old record store and looking through, you know, the archives, seeing what's in the bucket, see what's in there. What are they looking? Even to in CDs, that was still fun. Oh, so much yeah. fun! So and much. Now fun. everything's a cutout. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Essentially. <it> all <laughs> yeah. So, so Glenn, you know, you started your band at the what early age of fourteen. You wrote most of the lyrics to Bread and Circle. You know, your your kids are probably at that age now where you were when you came on the scene, right? My kids, uh, my oldest is the age I was when I had her and my career had already peaked. Oh, okay. It's phenomenal. So, that's wacky. That is wacky. Yes. <laughs> that is so, wild. You know, as someone that has taken songwriting in so many different directions over the last 25, 30 years, you know, what, what, when you look back when you were 14, 15 years old writing those songs, you know, what would you say to yourself now? Can you go back and say something? What would it be? 
Oh, I, I mean, uh, practical advice or creative advice? Let's go both. I, I mean, I would say save. Act like this will last a very short time and never happen again. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, save and invest. Buy some Apple stock. <laughs> uh, I would have said that. Bitcoin. <laughs> Right. Get in Bitcoin at the when it's at two dollars, yeah. but get out of it about now. <laughs> uh, you know things like that. Yeah. You're into you're into Tesla. You like that Nikolai guy? There's gonna be a company. There's I mean, I would have said things like that. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, you know, aside from just basic and and be more grateful and uh, say thank you more, say please more. Uh, just stop. Don't complain so much and enjoy it more is the main thing. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know. I mean, at that age, I did not think this was uh, where I was headed. I was uh, very much a theater kid. And at 16, I had a theater arts teacher and he talked about the reason it was his first year teaching. And he said the reason he was a teacher is he loved the theater more than anything, but he didn't want to have to sell himself. He knew he didn't have that thick skin to go to audition after audition and you know be this commodity in that world and but he just wanted to be in the theater so he taught and i at age 16 was like yeah i want to be a high school teacher so that was uh the direction that i thought i was heading in and then we got signed when i was 18 and it was like is you know i wasn't going to say no but we all i figured it would last about two years because most bands get signed get dropped and then move on and yeah. uh and instead it's you know it's been a while so <laughs> it's been a little bit but not certainly not a trajectory uh i would have expected or even i just didn't think i had the thick skin for it uh, uh and um it requires a certain amount of ego. And, uh, I mean, we had a weird trajectory because we got signed young and did well. And once again, kind of peaked commercially in my early 20s. And then, uh, you know, at some point, the, the whatever self-sabotage and uh, imposter syndrome caught up with me. And I spent most of my 30s and 40s cowering in terror. Uh, so, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, it's been an interesting time. Um <laughs> I don't know how you follow up from that. How you follow up? I don't know. Uh, you have a you have a fun middle age, but I mean, it is a strange. It's an odd world to be in because the the myths around it are that it's supposed to fill that hole that everybody has, and I think especially American stories about stardom, celebrity, all these things are, you know, it's the Counting Crows thing, right? You'll never be lonely. Everybody loves you. And and you're not, and they don't. And uh, and it doesn't last. And if you use those things to kind of fill yourself up and fill that empty hole in yourself, it's it's like filling it up with money, filling it up with adoration. It's like filling it up with anything. Yep. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it's also very hard to get any sympathy for having been briefly famous. So... <laughs> <laughs> You yeah, know, but you know, you, you've, as, you've problems a, go, it's yeah, like, as problems go, it's like, yeah, it's a good you've, problem. <laughs> you've done a good job at keeping busy, though. I mean, you know, you started out in your teens, you had success with the album Pale in what 89, then 1991 mm -hmm. comes around. That's the year kind of that changed everything for you guys. Alt rock was like really breaking big and blowing up. Um, that album Fear took you guys to new levels, you know, and did, did any of that yeah. like catch you by surprise? 
No, you all thought all it, it you, I guess I guess so because you said it would you thought it would be a two year thing and then it would kind yeah, of die all out. of it caught me completely by surprise. Uh, and I mean that's the funny thing. I got to be a rock star in my early twenties, and I kind of didn't. I thought I felt like it was happening to somebody else, and then I had to learn how to be a working musician in the, you know, whatever it's been almost 30 years since. <laughs> so, um, and I like being a working musician. It's a beautiful job. I mean, I get to go and play songs I love for people. I get to make people cry and laugh and uh, not really great at making them dance, but if I ever do that, it's like extra bonus round. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, it, it, it's an amazing job. And so I'm really grateful that I get to make art and that enough people care about it that I still get to do it. So feel lucky. If we don't mind, you know, in doing some research in getting ready for this conversation, uh, the band name comes from a Monty Python uh, sketch, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of people who know the story. Like, what was the conversation like? Like, what were you guys into? What were you guys thinking? And like, how easy was it? Was it a was it an arduous process or was it a really fun process? Oh, it was a thoughtless, thoughtless process that we thought would have no consequence. Uh, so basically <laughs> what happened is we had no name and we had a gig and we had to come up with something. And Dean, the bass player, said, what about Toad the Wet Sprocket? And we all went, that would be hilarious. Because once again, it's from this Monty right. Python sketch that's this. Yep. You know, band names like Poached Herring and a White Wine Sauce. Right. I mean, it's the worst <laughs> band names of all. Yeah. And so we're like, that would be hilarious. We got to see that in print. That would be absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And so we did it just because we figured we were going to, we figured we'd come up with a good name and nobody knew who we were. It was our first gig. And why not have the stupidest name ever? And then like a year passed and we were wanting something like, awesome and had your sound garden or, you know they're like i don't know uh we wanted a great name and something kind of you know big and pretentious and we couldn't agree on anything and by that time people were coming to see our shows so we're like oh can't you know 50 people actually care about this we can't change the name now so <laughs> it it i consider it to be you know the high school we all went to where we met is san marcus high school you know, sometime in, I think it was the late 70s, they built the temporary classrooms, the temporary buildings. And those were there when we were in high school in the 80s. And they are still there. And they're still called the temporary buildings. <laughs> and they've been there a very long time, almost my entire lifetime. And it's just one of those things, if, you know, temporary things aren't always. And uh, it's good to get it right the first time. So yeah. object lesson. Well, naming a band, naming a band is not an easy chore, you know, because the hope is it's something that's going to stick with you for a while. And makes I mean, the Beatles is like the dumbest dad joke ever. Right. Yeah. Beatles is tacky. That is high waisted pants. If ever if ever a, a, a band name was high waisted pants, it's it's the Beatles. <laughs> uh, and so, true. yeah, Rolling Stones better. Better. <laughs> Led Zeppelin, really? Like, <laughs> but anyway, so we are what we are now. Most people just call us Toad. I can live with Toad. Someday we'll come up with like the acronym, you know, what Toad actually means. Mm -hmm. uh, working on it. We got another 10 years for that. If you play one of your records backwards, it'll tell you. 
Mm. We used to tell people, uh, people like, what does the band name mean? We would say it is. Ah, oh, forget it, actually. In the day of streaming, I've always thought that live uh, was one of the worst names that possibly could have been selected for a band. <laughs> if you're going into to a search, you just hit live. It takes a while to find the band rather than every other live album that's been produced. Yes. Yeah. Although you hope you get the you, you, you hope to get the scraps to it that I mean I uh Toad's got an album coming out in late August and we're going to be hitting the road in September and you know almost as a joke uh, uh the title of the you know the the lead track on it is is Hold On and which makes me just laugh because apparently Hold On is the most common title uh, for <laughs> top 40 hits uh, there've been something like 14 or something, uh, different hold ons. So I'm actually hoping that just having a song, called, I, I, I thought of doing an album, like a solo project or a project with friends. I wanted to have 10 albums of the 10 most popular top 40 titles all released simultaneously. So it'd be like, hold on. And I love you. And I mean, all I want's up there too. There've been probably half a dozen all I want's. And, and so I just hope that residual streaming from people like, you know, typing into Spotify, play, hold on, and it'll accidentally <laughs> it play us there instead of Wilson Phillips, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. So it's the only way to survive now. <laughs> you, you're you saying that, um, so Toad's coming out with a new album in August, you know, a mm -hmm. tour. What, what's, um, what are you looking for most, of, what are you looking forward to most about getting back on the road? Uh, the, uh, I mean, first and foremost, more than getting out there, I'm just praying that it won't be canceled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I want to see a million faces and rock them all. I think yeah. as Bon Jovi said, it, it's like, I, I've been waiting, you know, just seeing people's expression and getting to, you know, be unmasked and, you know, just as things are opening, it, it's so you know, the, it's been hard to describe like the, the um, you know, I, I, you know, I see my girlfriend's face and my kids' faces, but, um, you know, the last year, um, there's like a certain loneliness uh, to, to having been in, in lockdown and, and just being in places, sharing music with other people, the tiny number of shows I've played, I've done a couple of house concerts, you know, mostly outdoors, did some in the Bay Area where people were masked and outdoors, but seeing people's faces again is just such a wonderful thing. And uh, I love the way music brings people together. I love seeing people sing along. And so, and I love travel. I love just getting to wake up in a new town, especially with the band, since we're in a bus, I can wake up, go for a run, see the town, like come back, play the show. Like it's, mm -hmm. um, it's part of my life I've, I've missed. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. well, especially since, you know, you've been doing a lot of different, you know, live shows on Facebook and that's probably you in that room right there, just kind of jamming this away. Right. Yeah. The studio as it yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. But you've been pretty active during the pandemic. You've been doing weekly shows. You've been, leading a living room choir amongst other things. You want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, to, to start with, so I've been doing, if you include the choir, I've been doing five shows a week, most weeks. I've, I've been doing wow. one stage it show, which is kind of a paid thing on Sundays. It's, you know, 10 cents, but then there's tipping. <laughs> uh, and that, yep. that, and then I've been doing uh, mostly three live casts a week. 
So those are on, you know, Facebook, YouTube. Um, and I've done, it's getting close to 200 of those at this point. Um, and so, you know, and those have been, um, you know, mostly fundraisers kind of taking advantage of the, um, the nonprofit donate button on, um, Facebook. And so we've been able to raise a lot of money for organizations and felt just good to have purpose. And, uh, like a community came out of it of people who are, um, you know, really become good friends. A couple of uh, couples have actually happened, <laughs> you know, one in England and one in the States moved in now in Austin. Wait, who during the show? Met through the live streams in the okay. <laughs> and ended up, uh, you know, ended up uh, uh, coupling up. So it's, it's, there's a, this real community of people who, you know, that was, those were the people that kind of became their social calendar, checking in on each other, seeing how they were doing, how their health was, you know, how, and so, um, you know, the music was one part of it, but the backdrop of the chat actually became really necessary for some people. So that, that was a beautiful thing. Um, and I've been leading, uh, these kind of community living room choirs for, I guess, four years now or something. Uh, and that of course had to shut down. And so I switched it to zoom where I'll, um, people will log on and I will loop myself on my looper pedal. And, uh, the community singing songs are kind of designed, um, to be quickly, quickly learned and accessible to non-musicians. The idea behind community singing in the movement is that it is, it's not for trained voices. It's, uh, for people who've had been voice shamed. Uh, or for people who grew up in a church, maybe, uh, and they love the music and the togetherness and the fellowship of that. But perhaps if it was, you know, super fundamentalist and they maybe fell away from that or just in their lives, they kind of, it's that element of singing, you know, positive, often spiritual, but non-denominational, like, you know, uh, songs and it just creates a sense of real belonging and, uh, and once again, to shut nobody out. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so it, I really love doing this and I had asked for years and years, I've been wondering about like non-performative music because as much as I love, um, you know, the excellence of somebody who's put in 10,000 hours and, I love being a person who's put in 10,000 hours mm-hmm. and, um, but there's something about the experience of somebody getting to be in that flow state of, of making music because it is such a, it's a, uh, such a physical process. Um, and, and so, um, you know, it, it, once it gets past thinking and becomes, uh, why am I, you know, more somatic, mm-hmm. um, people go pretty deep on it. And so kind of providing uh, a context in which people can reach that and they don't have to go through training and don't have to do anything else. Um, it's a really wonderful thing. So uh, anyway, it's not quite the same online. Uh, but it's not at all the same online. I'm really looking to singing in person. Probably in the next couple of weeks, we'll do some outdoor gatherings uh, in Santa Barbara. And um, I can't wait. Can't wait. You've referenced uh, modern day music making 
a couple of times. You referenced Spotify. You've referenced Stage It. You, you, you've referenced all of it. You seem very on top of technology. You've designed this this look, you know, this home studio. Do you embrace all of those things or is that just a necessary evil? Or do you sometimes, you know, when the microphone's off and the Stage It ends, do you say, God, I the, the old days are so much better. You, you seem on the surface to have really embraced the modern way of putting out content. I take it all with green salt. Uh, I will say, sorry. That's the best uh, answer to one of my questions no, ever. By far, by far. <laughs> I'll do the longer NPR version though. It, it, for me, um, I, kind of a love-hate relationship, right? I mean, my parents were... Uh, my, you know, my parents, my mom is still, she's a scientist. She was PhD in chemistry. My father was op an optical physicist. Um, they met at Berkeley, you know, there. So I grew up uh, with computers and, you know, literally lasers. I made for my sixth grade report. I made a holograph on the bathroom floor with my dad's helium neon laser. And so it's awesome. Um, so I grew up in a family that was scientific. On the other hand, my dad took me to uh, the local Zen Priory for meditation courses and was giving me books on Sufism and the Tao Te Ching. And so um, I also grew up uh, really loving the spiritual. And I think in, in the last few years, uh, the addictiveness of digital devices, the ability to have constant chatter and constant noise, um, has grown insidiously and exponentially. And uh, the impact it has on my life, I think, is incredibly destructive. So I, if I'm not live casting on social media, I work really hard not to look at it. Uh, mm. I am addicted to my phone, and I can't stand that I am addicted to my phone. I think it, uh, So there was a level of technology that I felt... Um, you know, pre-broadband, I, I remember my mom used to have, uh, she had a business for a while doing bibliographical searches for people on, on uh, you know, university servers back when it was an acoustic coupling modem. <laughs> you know, you would take your phone off and <laughs> stick it down onto the yep, thing. Yep, yep. Um, and so I think that was about the right level of technology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, for me personally, I love good gadgets. I love the fact, you know, we recorded this Toad album, you know, at our home studio. We did the drums in a studio, but then it was COVID. So we did the whole album, you know, I, I recorded all my parts on my laptop. I have an Apogee interface. I have some good yep. Neve Pre's and a good, good Neumann mic. And we were able to record from home and put it all up on Dropbox. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's soul numbing and mind killing. And when I get to go backpacking with my girlfriend and not look at a screen for three days and be in the wilderness and I feel like I remember what it's like to be human and be alive. So, um, yeah, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I, I kind of wonder uh about humanity's chances for survival i don't rate them very highly at the moment uh but you know there's this question is technology gonna save us or is technology eventually gonna just make us extinct and and i feel like the decisions we've made i mean even 
I remember there was a Radiolab uh, episode a while ago called Good, and I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he invented nitrogen-fixing uh, fertilizer and then later invented uh, like the mustard gas that the Germans used in World War I. Mm. And then in his closet of tricks was also Zyklon B, which was you know used during the Holocaust. And this was a German Jewish doctor uh, who... Um, you know, did all these things and ended up, you know, getting kicked out of Germany, but they still used his, his invention to kill, you know, his people, my people too. I had a, a bar mitzvah, you know, and so, um, the, the, the strangest thing about that podcast to me was it was talking about his invention of chemical fertilizer as this wonderful thing that saved Europe from, um, from famine. Um, and if you only count the lives immediately saved, it's maybe a good thing. But if you consider the, you know, the environmental devastation caused by chemical fertilizers, if you cause the lessons lost in relationship to the earth, how, how many of us should there be uh, if, if we're beyond the earth's capacity to sustain us, if we're beyond the land's capacity, should we learn ways of collaborating with the land, of talking about our population in ways that make sense? And we missed a, an incredibly vital opportunity to not get saved by science, but get saved by culture. Uh, and in the same way that, you know, when I think of Native American cultures, um, you know, that when humans came to North America, we had, you know, giant sloths. There were, there were this number of like slow, tasty animals that quickly became extinct. Mm -hmm. And I think in the, in the culture of the tribes, there was this idea of balance and that we stepped outside of the balance and there was a great cost. And so culturally we can no longer step outside of the balance that, that, that respect for an interaction with nature was actually a lesson that was hard learned and had great consequence, and they put that into their culture. And we've kept inventing our way out of our responsibilities. And uh, so that that's what scares me the most about technology, is that we just continue inventing our way past the real questions instead of asking what should we do, not just what can we do. That was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> you have used technology um, you know, from a social perspective, I'd say, and, in 2013, you crowdfunded the New Constellation album. Um, you know, that was a way to bring people together. And you saw from what you were originally trying to raise probably five times the amount to mm -hmm. put together that album. So, you know, one, I guess that's a good use of social. Uh, and two, that's, yeah. uh, it, there must be some kind of satisfaction uh, that came from that to see that people still love the band, still love you. It was really good to see how much people still cared about what we did and wanted to hear new music. And I, I mean, um, if I can say something about our audience is that they have been really willing to grow with us. Uh, I think my biggest fear as an artist that is that uh, to have nothing left to say or nothing valid left to say. And uh, maybe my, my thoughts have become less mainstream <laughs> as the years have gone by. <laughs> but, uh, but I hope they're still relevant and interesting to people. And, you know, that, that project was uh, just, it was a great vote of confidence that people still uh, cared about what we had to say. So, well, What about the new material? Oh, it's crap. 
<laughs> Thanks for coming on. No. All right. <laughs> Sorry. No. It was algorithmically composed. Uh, and uh, we just, you know, took once again, the most popular names of hits of all time. <laughs> Uh, genius idea the, no, I gotta tell you sorry the, the new album is um, I'm really proud of it I love the songs on it uh, they're it was interesting to write because a lot of these lyrics I mean Hold On is a great example it, it started out you know in the middle of the Trump era and it was written about uh, you know uh, immigration policy and kind of you know bad othering i guess you would call it being scared of those who aren't like you and and um and then the pandemic happened and i'm like oh well, i can't that's uh, and the, the chorus of the original was something like you know nothing else matter and it's like no lots of other things matter mm -hmm. i i ended up rewriting it as you know and then i kind of rewrote this version i was okay because it was kind of hitting the moment of covid and then george floyd happened and then i'm like i can't keep doing this moving target of, of current events. And so the for me, these songs were about kind of taking these events of the past, you know, maybe four years or so and trying to make sense of them and uh, in a more universal way. And even in, in a less partisan way, I mean, I'm a bleeding heart liberal nerd and uh, and I'm not... And I realized by the end of the Trump era that I was getting pretty disgusted with my own level of, of bile and hate. And I was mm -hmm. kind of becoming something I did not recognize or like. The toxicity and, is, is wild. Yeah. And so there was a lot of kind of examining my own judgment and, uh, you know, trying to make things broader and more open and question uh, my own limitations a lot more. And so, um, you know, I'm still me, uh, but I don't want to be a hateful, judgy me, uh, you know, because that's, uh, you know, at the core of what I believe in, that's, that's not part of it. And it's easy to get caught up, especially if you're always looking at your phone and checking out the news and getting your dopamine hit out of anger. And uh, so, you know, it's not always overt, but I started to get a lot more careful about my language and trying to be inclusive and not just inclusive in, in uh, you know, the woke way, but also <laughs> inclusive in terms of being like, uh, I may think a lot of people are wrong <laughs> and i may in fact be correct that certain beliefs are absolutely empirically wrong um but i also think people are more motivated by protecting what they love than by pure hate mm -hmm. and uh and if you're told that certain things you love are under threat you're going to act a certain way and so just trying to kind of get my compassion back without losing uh my I don't know, my clarity or uh, my moral standing. And so that's been a really, it's been an interesting process. Yeah. Is recording uh, as a band easier for you to, to put yourself back into that mental space that you need to be rather than, you know, having other artists around you to kind of rein you in rather than, you know, just being a solo artist and you can put all those emotions out there unchecked? Mm, 
no, <laughs> I kind of write. I mean, a lot of these songs were written. I, I had actually started a, a solo album and then decided to to can it and move those songs over to Toad. So this is actually like the first Toad record where I wrote all the songs. Uh, you know, there's no music. Uh, f you know, at a songwriting level, there's tons of amazing parts and arrangement. Um, and so it was really interesting to have that job of filling in, you know, these these parts that often, you know, come from Todd and Dean. And I know in, in the future we'll, we'll have all of us. Can, this is kind of a strange album in that way. Um, so and the recording of it was so I, you know, once again, I recorded in my room for the most part. And, you know, we would send tracks back and forth to each other so it didn't have that kind of real time feel it was all very stretched out and surreal uh, it was another COVID anomaly um, but I mean for me it's and you know and lyrically the, the guys are much more musically oriented I'm kind of left to my own on the words and so it was a lot of me just checking myself and going like how can I make this kinder? How can I make this? Um, you know, I think in general to have music uh, hit you hard, it has to have this combination of specificity and ambiguity. Um, it has to be specific enough to root you in a certain feeling and then uh, open enough for you to insert that into your own life where it isn't someone else's story, where you can kind of cast yourself in the middle of something or understand those um, ambivalent emotions, right? Not just joy, not just love, not just sadness, but the combinations of those, that like, you know, garam masala of, of emotion that is kind of, you know, how we actually feel. So that's interesting. So like when it comes to songwriting, for example, you know, do you just kind of put yourself into that mood one day? Do you just kind of like, what's your formula? How does that work for you? There isn't really a formula. I used to just kind of write whatever came to me and then figure if, you know, hey, if you like it or not, whatever. Yeah. And in the last like five years, part of it was um, actually a discussion I had with my friend Titer Lawson uh, from the Faroe Islands. Titer, a uh, great songwriter. And he said, basically, like, you only get to make a handful of records in your life. And, um, they sh you should try to make them all great and you should try to make them important. You know, just saying like, this is the last 10 songs I wrote isn't really fair to anyone, including yourself, including music. And, uh, and, and for me also partially, if I gauge success by the, the usual music business metrics, you know, I'm making a living, which is great for a musician. That's rare. Um, Very. but like, I'm not you too, right? I'm not Depeche Mode. I'm not Bruce Springsteen. You know, Toad is not these. You know, we're 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 blue collar working band. We go on the road and we have to hustle, and you know, we're, you know, and so it's it's interesting to be in that position and then go, okay, so how am I going to gauge success? And as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more involved in things like community singing and things that mm -hmm. to me feel sacred and don't feel 
where music isn't judged by your chart position. It's judged by how deeply you touch people and yep. it's judged by how you open people up and how comfortable you can make them feel. And for me, like that was finding this key to the purpose of music again. And so I've been reapplying the things I've learned in these non-commercial settings to kind of the purpose of the band. Uh, and at the same time realizing, I, you know, if I go the actual like hemp shirted, uh, you know, drumming in the woods hippie that I often actually am, mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to do anybody much good. It's going to be a barrier, <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, it'll be a barrier to entry. And I've seen that done, right? When people have their midlife crisis and all of a sudden it's like, ah, I'm so just, <laughs> it's, it's not, not a great look. And so I'm actually trying to figure out how to go through my spiritual process and share as much as I can of the fruits of that without preaching, proselytizing or pushing people away and doing things that are still universal uh, and meeting people where they are and uh, not trying to be something I'm not. I mean, that's the other thing I found as I get older is any teacher I've ever had or somebody who offered themselves as a teacher who acted like they had everything worked out did not. Yep. And I more and more trust mentors who are vulnerable and are still in process and don't they may be good at what they've done they may know a lot and they may have walked down a certain path but they don't think they're any better than anybody they don't think they're done and i trust that yep. so hoping to offer in whatever way from my position on my thing a, a little of that to other people so i i talk a lot now but i write <laughs> with a lot more purpose than i used to <laughs> And well, I think when I was young, it's just the ego of being a 20 year old. And you're like, everything I say is awesome. I don't yeah, know what it means. What? Yeah. And now I want it to mean something. Yeah. So, well, I don't think anybody really has it worked out. I know I don't. That's for sure. Jeff, Seth, I'm not sure about you guys, but Glenn, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. I got to say, thank this you. was a really enlightening conversation. We really appreciate the insight, the time, the stories. And this was awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. You know, it's funny when you think about, you know, athletes that you were growing up being a fan of, when you think about rock stars, when you think about your heroes, um, it's really cool to find out that they're actually decent people and people you really would want to root for. And Glenn Phillips was one of those people, right? Without a <laughs> doubt, without a doubt. You know, that was, it was a very deep conversation. You know, it went in so many different directions. Um, really enjoyed talking to him, learning about his career, what he's doing now. He used a quote from a, John bon, a bon Jovi song, seeing a million faces and rocking them all. You know, the feeling of when you're on stage and you're looking out there and, you know, seeing all the people, you know, singing your songs right back to you. That's gotta be awesome. Yeah, yeah uh, that, is a, that is a really good line for him. Um, he has rocked all those faces. A very introspective, great conversation. And I would say in a pre- social media world as much as i loved to let's Brockett, new glenn and new solo stuff honestly didn't know much about glenn phillips what do we have uh, rolling stone to read a story about you know and you know not being with the band you know there's not as much publicity about them and i didn't know really anything about him he is a deep intelligent introspective individual yeah and uh you know he was talking a lot about taking the names of some most popular hits that have been out there before, like hold on <laughs> and creating this album, you know, he's just, 
he, he's not in it for the money. He's not in it for the fame. He's in it for the music. And we've talked about he this on this money, podcast. Though. He does. He does like who money. doesn't like money? Everyone likes money. <laughs> get a survive. You got to survive in this day and age of uh, you know between streaming and touring and you know independent out of album sales. You got to make a living too. Well, one of these days we'll make this our living. We'll just do hallowed ground every day. That would be an absolute pleasure uh, to leave our day jobs behind. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, Glenn Phillips for coming on. Toad the Wet Sprocket. That's another band that we've taken a look at on the hallowed ground. We'll see you next week. <laughs>